to the full cat with Bruce Dobigan. I'm Bruce Dobigan, and this is where curiosity leads me. If you enjoy these podcasts, do go to iTunes, look under Not the Public Podcast, and subscribe. We're also available on a number of your other favorite platforms. Back in the days before TSN and Sportsnet wiped out local sports programming, fans could get their fix from the faces and voices of guys and some gals on the conventional TV channels. In its heyday in the 1980s, I was the guy on Toronto's CBC TV. Joe Tilly worked late nights over at CTV. And at Global, Mark Hebsher partnered with Jim Taddy on Sportsline. Working with limited resources, the emphasis was always on grabbing the viewer however you could. With Mark and Jim, it was the buddy format. Long before Jay and Dan ever arrived, they did the fast-talking patter and inside humor. They were big stars in southern Ontario before the all-sports networks came along to make us redundant to our bosses. Like me, Mark now does his own podcast. It's called Hebsey on Sports, and he's got his first book coming out next February. thought this might be a good time to get him in here on the full count to talk about the biz, about why independent voices are dead, and about some of the issues in my new book, Cap in Hand. Hey, Mark, good to have you with us. Uh, first of all, is, is it possible to have the same relationships with athletes as we had back in the day? You really can't do that. It, it, it's all, virtually impossible. You have to be a, a really well-known journalist that has a great level of trust along, you know, players' lines, managers' lines. In other words, the manager or the coach or the veteran player has to tell the guy that you want to interview that you're okay. You've got to get a sort of a thumbs up saying, yeah, this guy's okay to talk to. And even then, and even then, and if there's a language barrier to get to know the guy, to get out of that particular player or manager, what you want, you know, it's sort of hit or miss. Back in our day, we could sit down next to a guy on the bench in the dressing room for 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, uh, get a great story with great clips, and at the same time, develop a relationship with someone who you're going to go back and want to interview again and again. Imagine nowadays covering the Toronto Maple Leafs and saying, all right, Austin Matthews, John Tavares. William Nylander when he signs, and Mitch Marner. Those are the four guys. i got to have relationships with those four guys because we're going to be writing about those four guys or broadcasting about them a lot, those four guys. It's really hard to be able to do that now, really hard. Yeah, I, I can remember going, being able to go to Dunedin and proposing to the Blue Jays that uh, we would go and do a fishing trip with John Mayberry or we would go golfing with somebody and you would spend an afternoon in a casual setting and you were able to do that and you would get a feature showing this guy away from everything. And, uh, you know, it's not like they had anything revolutionary to say or they were going to give you great secrets at the time, but you had that kind of access. And now, of course, uh, there's just a wall that they've put up between you and, and the athletes and, and you can't you can't get past it. And and frankly, in those days, the guys were making probably almost the same money as we were, so there was no pretension about them. Nowadays, they're making so much money that they don't really need us. That's true. When I started uh, covering the Blue Jays, I was making $18,000 a year, and the highest paid Blue Jay was $45,000 a year, Louis Gomez. Yeah. So you're right. You're right, about twice as much. And, you know, they lived, they rented a house in the neighborhood you might be living in not in a gated community. I agree. But the thing is, the access to the athlete was so, I mean, we would stay in the same hotels on the same floor as guys like that. So how can you not get to know them as human beings? Yeah. Now, now for any reporter, 
um, to, to get to know someone as a human being, very, very um, difficult to do. And, and then, and in that case there, you might be running into a, a conflict of interest where, you know, that guy's my buddy. Yeah, but he's also like a top player or, or he did something wrong. And you, if you're a journalist or whatever, you have to have a, you know, I guess a take on that guy. What if he's your friend? Yeah. So, you know, there's that too. You could, you could get friendly with the players and the coaches. You could drink with them, for example, get friendly with them. And there would be a professional courtesy. You wouldn't say stuff or write stuff about them that, you know, was, you know, happened in a bar or in the locker room or something like that. Yeah, I, now I, I, people are looking for that. They're just so looking for a, an edge yeah. that, 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 that the media relations departments of these teams have to keep the media away from the players. Yeah. Have I, to be able to make that separation. Yeah, I mean, I remember that was the biggest problem when I started doing the Alan Eagleson stuff was that there were so many people who had used uh, Eagleson as a source, uh, felt a loyalty to him because he'd helped them on a day when they needed a clip at the last second. He would he would supply it. Uh, he was good copy, etc. And while they didn't necessarily support what he was doing, nobody wanted to go and say negative stuff about Al. So there was always that sense when I was doing the story in the early days that that I was kind of out there on a limb because there weren't the people who I was talking about. I wasn't necessarily burning any friendships. When when it came to knowing people and my sources, I also understood that what the conflicts were, and uh, that that's what made it very difficult for me was uh, was trying to get people to to you know what we're journalists we got to look at this story object objectively i don't care if al helped you out in the past you got to be able to do this story i admit to being a, a guilty there um bruce whenever we needed tickets to a high profile event eagleson came through canada cup um you know how many do you need mark what do you know what do you guys need yeah. so he was and, and you know hey we were always you remember this too bruce we were always invited to these great i don't know maybe you weren't because you were chasing them down but these great golf tournaments in the in the late 80s that, you know, these huge million dollar uh, celebrity charity golf tournaments where you get swag bags that were worth hundreds of dollars and, you know, come on out and meet the players, the NHL Players Association. So, yeah, I, I admit it, you know, Eagleson came through whenever we needed something for our golf tournament, uh, an autographed jersey or something, he would come through. So when the time came that you were starting your investigation, everyone was like, well, wait a second, man, that's Al. Yep. He, he's a bud. He, you know, if I need... If I need anything, he can come through. And that was and, and, and he cultivated that for years. Yeah. And that's why it took so long for people to wise up to what he was doing. Even the players he was ripping off. Yeah. That that to me was, you know, I mean, that's how much of an a, a spell he had. How great a friend he was to these guys, apparently so. That they couldn't possibly pull the trigger on saying, no, 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 we like Bobby Clark's probably the best example I yep. would think, eh, Bruce? He's still loyal to him. I mean, I, one of the, the most uh, famous stories that I have is that I remember going to Mike Gillis because uh, Eagleson had stolen his disability insurance. And, and Gillis, uh, who, of course, folks now know, went on to be the general manager of the Canucks. He was a famous agent for a while. In any event, uh, Gillis just refused to believe it. He just refused to believe that Al would have done that to him. And, in fact, it was his wife who went and looked at the documents and said, you know what, they're right. And that's that. Turned the world, and in credit to Mike, once we had, were able to show him what had happened, he did go with the story. He was willing to break the bond with Al, but it was, it, it, you know, that's a typical example. He had been like a father figure to Mike. Mike had lost his own father, and Al had been kind of a father figure to him. Couldn't believe that somebody would rip him off for his disability insurance. Just an amazing story. It just made me think of Graham James right now, Bruce. Like right now, I thought the same thing. Everyone said, "How could it be?" No way. The least suspicious. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it, was, it was that way. And, and, you know, the way I got around a lot of this stuff, in the, not to get too much in the past, but the way I got around a lot of that was that I realized players were compromised. It was hard for them to say stuff. And, and I just found, discovered that agents were the best place to go to to get real information. Uh, they didn't care. You know, they were nobodies. Uh, you, could, you could put stories in the paper. You could put stories on air that they would put forward. And uh, then, they, you know, the, the players themselves weren't hurt. And, and that, that went a long way in a lot of the reporting I did to helping me was to not have to depend on the athletes right well people like you and me now have to be those types of agents we work for big companies you work for the public broadcaster or we work for private companies now we work for ourselves and i think our perspective and the you know the experience that we have um you know you know our voice is necessary yeah. because you if you were to say to someone hey did you hear about whatever the story was they said yeah where did you hear it like what was your source they're not going to be able to tell you if it was this television station this website that's true. A, a tweet, That's right? True. Back in the day. And, and you know, when people told, you know, asked me about Sportsline and what was made it different, I said, I can say this right now. People used to say, hey, I, I saw this on Sportsline, the way it was presented. But nowadays, if you're watching any of the sports networks, you're not going to know, you're not going to remember which station you were watching. And you're certainly not going to remember the voice, whoever the disembodied voice of the announcer was. Uh, that actually reported that to you. And I think that's kind of a, you know, I like the fact that people say, hey, I like the way you delivered the sports, your perspective on the sports. I like you, Bruce, because I like the way your perspective is, that you don't, you cut through the nonsense because you have no loyalties to Alan Eagleson. You have loyalties to your viewers or your readers yeah. to give them the truth. And there's less and less of that now. You really have to sift through a lot of, you know, who's the source of this? When people say to me, hey, I heard about the, this trade or whatever. First thing I say is, where'd you hear this? Yeah. Oh, I, uh, Twitter. What was the source? Oh, like a buddy from another buddy got it from a retweet. I'm going, hey, listen, you better check that source because if it's some goofball who's making up stories, um, then you know it's not it's just not true at all. And that's I think that's the biggest problem. It's okay. Who's telling me this? And what's their reputation like? Yeah. Just, and just, back in the day, you didn't uh, you didn't question it. If you were watching television, that television station had a responsibility to give you the truth. Yeah. Right? You knew you were gay. That newspaper was printing you the truth. Yeah. Nowadays, not so much. Yeah, you were, you were talking about uh, about people knowing what channel they were on. <laughs> a famous story for us was we were doing focus groups, and uh, the focus group was a bunch of people who swore they didn't watch CBC. And so we, wanted, <laughs> we wanted to hear from people who didn't watch CBC what they liked about Global, what they liked about CTV. <laughs> and, of course, in one of the meetings, uh, they, they put on a, a, a clip of our host at the time, who was Hillary Brown. And one of the women in the focus group said, I like her. She's the best. She's the best. In other words, <laughs> she had no idea which channel she was watching when she was watching, but she swore that for the focus group, she didn't like CBC. Anyhow, you're right. You nailed it. That's it. People don't always see the number or the station. It's the person that they put it through. And I guess that makes me ask you at the time how independent you were. Because you guys you guys had a good rep. You, you guys were kind of above the title a little bit. How independent were you? How much... Uh, sort of rope did global give you oh we had lots we had lots because i think they i think they respected us as um mm, journalists that we were and our producer mark askin and uh, jim and myself i mean you know dave rutherford we had a good team like the, these just weren't i mean we were we wanted to get the story uh naturally when we would go to spring training like you say you know there's features type of stuff you're not doing really hard news down there except for the time that george bell was late and everybody <laughs> was waiting around for him and uh, there was a whole kerfuffle but i i think that they let us go because they realized that we were putting a, a program together 
uh, a sports cast, a 30-minute sports cast together. And we could separate the having fun with the highlights. Here's what's going on right now. And uh, the, the stories that required, you know, um, uh, you know, a more, more, more balance. Yeah, maybe more balance, but also an edge. Maybe yep. the like you say, you know, just bringing up the fact because, look, Bruce, like you, once the Eagleson story broke, of course, we had to cover it. I remember chasing Alan Eagleson down out in front of his house one night <laughs> in front of his house in the dark with a cameraman saying, you know, flipping on the camera lights in the dark saying, Mr. Eagleson. And he knew me. And he's like, well, come on, what, like, what are you doing? And we're rolling, you know, and this is so, you know, that's what they like. They like that stuff because also Global News enjoyed it um, because they're they're a news organization. So they enjoyed the fact that we were treating a lot of sports like it was news as it should be, as opposed to just giving you scores. And um, what do they call it in the business? Oh, bingo. Being a bingo caller. Bingo caller. Yeah. yeah. A win therapist. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right, so magazine sport- had lots of those good titles for people. Hair and teeth. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So in sports in those days, when you flip through to the sports, right. And especially yeah. in our case, it was, you're going to get the, you're going to get your highlights, but you were going to get the news and you're going to get, uh, you're going to get good journalism. You're going to get well-asked questions. You weren't going to get fluffy stuff. Um, and nowadays you, nowadays you pretty much get fluffy stuff. You're listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest uh, this episode is sports broadcaster Mark Hebsher. His podcast is Hebsey on Sports. And his new book, 66,000 Words, apparently, <laughs> comes out in February. Okay. Uh, you've read my new book, Cap in Hand. Yes, about the I have. Excellent. Televised sports. Thank you. Uh, and how leagues in North America, I think, are missing out on the revolution in televised sports. Do you agree that the expansion model, the one that you and I grew up with, is dead? Oh yeah. Oh, long time ago. Long time ago. Um, that to me, the model, the best model, and you pointed out in the book and I love, you see, I love soccer. I didn't, I didn't like, I didn't used to love soccer because not enough of it was on television and whatever I was watching, just whatever it was a game between two teams that I didn't know about. But now I find soccer to be tremendously exciting. Uh, and it's because it's the same teams that I'm watching but they're good teams with really, really good players. I don't want to watch a team where I don't know anybody on the team and they're a boring team and they're playing for a tie on the road or whatever it is. And I think the model in Britain is especially is that if you don't maintain a certain standard, we're going to send you back down to the minor leagues. And if they had the same thing in North American sports, I think, as you pointed out, I think it would just be much, much better, much more competitive. I don't want to see parity. I'm not interested in 30 teams that are all around 500. Yeah, I want, I want to, yeah, I want to see a team that's really, really good, and I want to see another team that's challenging that team, and I want to see four or five or six teams that are in the mix every year and they're kicking the snot out of each other, but they've got the best players. Yeah, I spent a lot of time uh, talking about parody in the book, and one of the things that gets me, and, and God bless sports fans. They say one thing, but they mean another. And what they'll tell you is, oh yeah, we like parody. We like the thought that everybody has a chance to win. But if it's not their team, in fact, they just want to see the best. They just want to see the best play the best. And and as I say, you got to you got to listen to them. Take it with a little bit of skepticism because they like the crest on the chest. But they also want well. Just the other day, you know, you're watching the the, the Warriors. They put up ninety some odd points in the first half. That's people go. Wow, I should be watching that game. Why am I watching this boring? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Sacramento Kings versus New Orleans Pelicans game in the middle of February. Why am I watching that when I should be watching? Uh, the, 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 the Cavs or wherever LeBron is playing at the moment. Oh, I agree. And, and I'm the same way. And in fact, um, I'm trying to think I was watching something the other night where the guy, 
the, the, the sports guy they were talking to admitted to flipping back and forth. He said, well, I was watching a Leaf game. I flipped to the Raptor game. But I think we all do that if it's live sports. If someone says to you, oh, no, no, I PVR'd it, and then I went home and watched it at 3 a.m., I'm like, come on. <laughs> uh, you know, come really? Come on. You got to, you know, you know what it's like. We all we all know how to run multiple screens now. Yeah. And on and on many occasions there have been like this week, past week, the World Series was on at the same time as the Raptors and the, and the Leafs. And to me, they were all interesting and, you know, important. And if this game got boring, I could flip to that game. And but I have to tell you something when I'm watching so, when I'm watching soccer. I'm, I'm transfixed on the on the big name players. I'm a Tottenham Hotspur fan, so I'm watching Harry Kane. Yep. Before that, I was watching Gareth Bale. I watched Cristiano Ronaldo. Even when Wayne Rooney and you know, and before that Beckham came to North America, I didn't care. Couldn't have cared less about MLS, and I couldn't name you the players on most teams, but I can name you all the superstars that are playing. I can tell you who Sebastian Javinko is, Michael Bradley, and Josie Altidore. Those are the three big name guys on on TFC, and that's what made soccer. Uh, that now, do they have the same model in MLS? There's no relegation, is there in no, MLS? No, MLS has has a salary cap, and they've tried to do the North American uh, uh, model, uh, and I don't think it necessarily helps them. But then, of course, once they realize that exactly what you're talking about, people wanted to see big names. They allow every team to have an exemption for one big name they can bring in, and he doesn't count against the salary cap. So, in mm. some respects, it's a cap. Some it's only a cap for the poorer guys. It's not a cap for the big guys. And and uh, that's you know one of the things that people don't understand here, and and it's why the Olympics, the NHL missing the Olympics this cycle was was a disaster for them. Is that the way they've done this? And it again, you can remember back in the old days, who was wearing soccer jerseys in Toronto in the 1980s and 90s? Nobody. Nowadays, you well, walk downtown yeah, yeah. and they got the jerseys on all the time. And that's because North America gets more televised soccer than any place on earth. They've gotten in through the TV portal, and that's why kids are, do, are, are, are doing what ex exactly what you're saying. Bruce, I remember going on a TV show on Channel 47, which was multicultural television in Toronto. It's it's Rogers TV now. It's Omni, it's called. But back in those days, you go down to the studio and they had a soccer show, you know, and, and because it was a multicultural station and they would do a soccer show. And I remember going in there and I'm people going, oh, soccer. Oh, God, because whatever they, uh, soccer they were exposed to at the time on television, I'm, let's say we're talking about the 1980s. And into the early 90s, the only soccer they were exposed to was the Bundesliga on Sunday mornings. Uh, and maybe, uh, you know, if you had the Italian channel, the, you know, uh, the, the games from Italy, a British soccer once in a blue moon, usually the FA Cup replay or something on CBC on a, you know, once once in a blue moon. So people weren't exposed to good soccer or consistent soccer. So, uh, you know, they watched Toronto Metro's Croatia play in the North American Soccer League or the Toronto Blizzard play. So they were like, eh. Then you're right. Once they got to see World Cup soccer, high level soccer and big names uh, and it became available on television, it just was unbelievable. It's the number of people. I'm like my son right, says to me and he's 22 and he says, Dad, he goes, this Ibrahimovic, did you see that goal? Now, he wouldn't have known so a soccer ball from a pumpkin. Yep. So and he's right in there. He's 22. So now he's looking for an Ibrahimovic jersey. So he's now going back over Ibrahimovic's career. Which jersey do I want? Do I want the Man U jersey? Do I want the LA Galaxy jersey? It's too funny. Yeah, yeah. These guys and the the, the the commissioners are talking about expansion. I mean, they clearly don't understand this. They don't understand this. And and the thing that that also has happened with it because you concentrate the best players and the best teams. It has. I, I I used to hate soccer. I'd sit there and say, Why do they have this rule? 
Why are you allowed to kick it back across the center line? This is so slow right. and so boring. But having the best play the best has produced great soccer. The game now is played at twice the speed it was before. And as you say, the Ibrahimovic guys are doing gymnastics on the field. And I, I just say, what if the t- first division of hockey was 20 teams and we could see all those players concentrated on those, ga- those games, on those teams? We'd see such better games. Oh, hundred percent because, and you're right. I mean, I, 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 in like, I'm, and I'm going for the first time I've never been because I traveled all North America during my career, never had the chance to go across the pond. So I'm going to England for three days. I'm going to see two soccer matches in the middle of the week. I can hardly wait. And it's because the rivalries, um, like they were in the six team NHL and to a lesser extent, the 12 team NHL, but the right to think of Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham, Man U. Liverpool. I mean, you know, the top, um, the top team. I'm sure I'm missing out a couple of Manchester City, sure. but these top teams are always playing each other and there's always lots on the line and they always play one game at home and one game in the other team's park. There's always that. So these are those like on the NFL schedule, these games come up and they're huge. But then there's the other games where you've got to play these other teams that, you know, aren't so great and, you know, but but you still have to win those games and you have to score a lot of goals in those games because goal differential means something. And every game is meaningful. And if you're at the bottom of the table, every point is something because you might get relegated. And if you get relegated, then I don't know, I guess it's like having your pants pulled down in front of the <laughs> soccer community. It's, so so that drama and emotion needs to happen in North American sports. I agree. Yeah, why why we why do we reward you ruin your business, you run it terribly, and then at the end of the season they say, Boy, you made a mess of that. Okay, here's the best new player. I mean in in soccer, you know that your reward for that is you go to the second division and pretty soon your sources of income are cut if are huge and you've got to get serious about having the right people doing stuff. And and of course for a television spectacle, the relegation fight at the end of the year is just as good a TV spectacle as the top of the table. Right. See, here, this is the way I look at it. It's quite simple to me. I, if, I, if people tell me that this is a great movie and it's got five stars, I'm going to go see it on that recommendation. It's got great actors, great director, great script. I got that. Right. I expect it to be great. If someone says to me, here's a game in the middle of a season between two teams, they're, they're both OK. They're not great. They don't have superstar players, but it's a game in the schedule. And here's how much it costs to go see that game. Or here's how much time it's going to take you to watch that game. Why, why do I want to watch that? I want to see the best. If you tell me it's Man U versus Man City, I'm interested. If you tell me it's the Cowboys, Redskins, and whoever wins makes the playoffs, I'm interested. But I'm not interested in mediocre competition. So like you say, I don't care if it's tiddlywinks. I I, I watch Joey Chestnut in the World Hot Dog Eating Championship. (laughs) If it's it's the best against the best, I want to see that competition. I I don't care what the sport is. I don't care what the event. I don't care if it's a great debate. But anything less than that, to get my interest, it's like watching something that's three stars on Netflix. Why would I bother? Yeah. One of the things I, I talk about in the book, owners talk like capitalists, but they act like socialists. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've watched these guys for a long time. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I would. <laughs> I would. Because the owners that, I, that we used to deal with are the ones that owners, an actual human being, one person, Harold Ballard. Anybody that ever owned the Toronto Argonauts or any CFL team, think of the characters, you know, some of the yeah. whack jobs, <laughs> individuals, the, you know, the Peter Pocklingtons, the Nelson Scalpanias, the Harold Ballards, the Harry Ornests, you know, and I'm not even talking about the U.S. owners, Carol Rosenblum of the Rams, Ursay, who took his team, he took the Baltimore Colts in the middle of the night and took them to uh, Indianapolis. Yeah. I mean, 
they were human beings. They were individuals. They were, they loved their players. You know, Tom Yawkey loved his players. They owned the Red Sox, blind love. Uh, and they, and they were, these were kind of, they were toys, but the guys were, now it's strictly an investment, yeah. right? Oh, you, you've got your Jerry Jones. I get that. But, uh, you know, the changing of ownerships and the conglomerates and who is this guy? Like, in other words, they must, people must look at Toronto and go, well, who is running the Blue Jays? Is it Rogers? Is it Shapiro? Is it whatever? Who's really running this team? Was it the P- teacher's pension fund? So all of that, you know, it used to just be Ballard was the owner. There was no teacher's pension fund. It was this guy. He owned the team. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He was the guy you would go to who made the decisions because he was the owner. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody was above him. Hurts. The corporate oh, thing hurts. Oh, it does terribly, Bruce. It really does. It really takes away from it. But I, but I guess that's necessary if you're going to, if you have to have, if you're spending that much money and, and every player deserves every penny he can get, I don't care if someone's willing to pay you that, man, I, I, you know, go ahead. Salary cap to me would be wrong to put a salary cap in any business. Just, you know, that's just wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, whatever. I think the, the players should be able to make what they can make and that the owners should be able to compete at the level they can compete at. And, and this idea, again, we get back to the parody word, the idea that and I live in a small city, the idea that Calgary's economy somehow should be able to compete with New York, Chicago and Toronto is crazy. We, I mean, the NHL is coming in here telling us we have to build a certain type of arena in the city of Calgary at huge cost so we can compete with everybody else or they're going to take our team away. Uh, you know, and, and then we have to pay $300, $350 a ticket in Winnipeg to go and see an NHL game. That's not a market that can sustain those prices. It's crazy. That's why I, you know, I like the, the, the soccer model where you play at the level you can afford. And that Winnipeg, and God bless us, Calgary and some of these other cities, if our owners can't fess up the, the, the difference to get us up to the premiership division, we should play at a level we can afford so the fans aren't being blackmailed. I agree. But I have to tell you, Bruce, I keep seeing, I, I see full houses. I mean, you can't get a ticket in uh, Winnipeg for a lot of games. Well, they have a small uh, I, arena, but yeah. Well, I, but, ha, ha, but that's the key because here's what this is. And this is where the greed came in. I think when, when Ottawa decided they were going to build, they said, you know, we're going to build, how big is the air Canada center? 19, five, we're going to build a 19,500 seat arena. I remember saying that's ridiculous. Even if it were in downtown Ottawa, maybe, mm. but way out in the sticks, Seventeen five. Oh no, no, seventeen five is not going to be enough. So they made it huge. And I remember from the very beginning, maybe after the first season when it was the Palladium or the Corral. Oh, was it the Palladium? Palladium, yep, the Palladium. Okay, and oh yeah, they would pack the place for the first number of games, and then you started to see huge, you know, swaths swaths of empty seats. Yeah, maybe two thousand or three thousand a game because that market could not sustain. I mean, they could put sixteen thousand, sixteen five into an arena for the most part. But not 19.5, and it looked awful. Yeah. And I think Montreal, I think Montreal, when they built Montreal, it was over 21,000. It's too big. Uh, it was too big. And the other thing was, at the same time they were building big arenas, the television experience, as you pointed out in Cap in Hand, became greater and greater. I love watching television on my big screen. I got to tell you, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful in 4K. I mean, I, it's it's beautiful. And then I thought, and I went to many Blue Jay games this year. The experience being live is, of course, great. But I thought, you know, here I am. I've got pretty good seats, but I'm still pretty far from the action, right? Yeah. And if I want to go to the bathroom or I want to get something or whatever, it's a pretty long haul. And um, 
And so it was great. But boy, in front of the television set is, you know, a really great. A lot of people are more than happy to watch and you know, pay their cable bill or, you know, whatever it costs them for their package yep. to watch the games like that. So, I mean, you got to get people you gotta, if you want to really get bumps in the seats, the experience at the arena has to change in a lot of places. And I'm going to use uh, the dome as the best example. Yeah. Boy, I've been to some places where watching the game is, you know, the game is secondary sometimes, right? It's yep. the experience, which is one of the reasons I want to see British soccer. I want the experience of it. Yeah, you know, it, that's one of the things that I suggested years ago. I, I said if I was a, a sports owner these days, I'd build a 7,500-seat uh, arena, and it would be like dinner theater. It would be like people sitting at tables having dinners, uh, ordering their meals, and watching a, a production because we have to compete with all of the things you just talked about. Um, finally, uh, you know, one of the things about salary caps, of course, is that We've had all sorts of, uh, and you covered them and I covered them. We've had lockouts. We've had strikes time after oh. time for, by leagues trying to impose a salary cap like the NHL. And they finally have their salary cap. And now I hear that Bettman is talking about in another two years, shutting down the league again to refine the salary cap. What do you think is going to happen with fans who've, who've invested so much in, in, in those years where they couldn't watch their team and said, okay, we're giving you a break. You're going to put your house in order, et cetera. How do you think they're going to react when Bettman comes back and says, no, no, we got to do this again? I think the older fans will be upset and finally say, that's it for me. I think the younger fans will be forgiving the same way we were, Bruce, when in 1981 baseball went on strike for 50 days, right? And we were, oh, my God, you've got to find something else to do. And some people did find something else to do. They lost interest. But eventually people came back and then some. So I think history sort of says that, yeah, you'll have a lockout, but if it's going to make things better – um, then it, and it's necessary to me. It's sort of like you're renovating your home. Yeah. All right. Except that you're um, renovating the salary cap. True. Which, true. Which people are saying, look, it, it doesn't seem to have given the pro you 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 said it would do X, Y, and Z. It hasn't done those things. Now you're telling me you got We got to have another lockout so you can refine it again. I mean, maybe the problem isn't is the it's the salary cap itself, not the other stuff that you're talking about, the players. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you would hope that, you know, everything would be looked after in collective bargaining. But I mean, eventually contracts end and they have to be reestablished and the landscape changes so greatly. And you mentioned things like digital media in cap in hand. And I mean, you're going to do a revision of your book in about two years and the whole digital media landscape will have changed by then. Yep. The original the one you were talking about will have been obsolete. The one that people thought 10 years ago was the correct model, and they put their television control rooms together in such a way, and other, those are obsolete now. Yeah. I, know, I know a television control room that was done less than 10 years ago, they have to completely change over, completely, because the people that told them that this is the way it was going to be had no idea how technology was going to advance to this point. Yeah, yeah. no, it's... it's uh... It's it's a very different world, and and you you will find out as you get closer to publication day. There's going to be a drop dead date at which they say this is the last day you can change stuff in the book. And believe me, you'll be changing references and things in the book at the last second because they. Oh no, I've already got it. I, I'm two weeks away, Bruce. I've got everything except for. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you right now, I've got two the most famous Canadians that are have both semi committed to writing the forward. Yeah. In t in tandem, and if I can lock that down, then I'm done. Everything else is done. So that's my. That's my focus. But right it doesn't now. But yes. come out till February. That's right. It's called the greatest athlete. And then in brackets, you've never heard of. Okay. Okay. And Bruce, you know, your sports. I know, you know that I know my sports. Yep. I, I had never heard of this guy before. His name is George Washington Orton. 
Canadian as they come. But for some reason, which I detail in the book, Canadians didn't want to have anything to do with this guy once he had crossed over to the United States. Okay. They, they kind of ignored him and all that. And he was the greatest. He was the greatest athlete I had never heard of. And you probably never heard of either. That's great. So re repeat the title again for people listening. Yep. The greatest athlete you've never heard of. Excellent. Excellent. And mine, of course, is cap in hand, how salary caps are killing pro sports and why the free market could save them. You see, you and I know, understand how to log roll a little bit, don't we? <laughs> get, get that title out there, baby. You got to promote a little bit. Well, I really like, I like to, I like to put your perspective, Bruce. And I, I like the stories too. kind of, it was a nice refresher course on, Oh yeah. The Ilya Kovalchuk contract with him. Yeah. Yep. I remember that now. And it's like really, and some really nefarious moves made by ownership and just, yeah, very, some very distasteful stuff that owners and agents, uh, you know, mostly ownership did to, you know, to, to screw players around and, and the fans too. Yep. Yeah, it goes back to Babe Ruth, the time of Babe Ruth, his first contract and right up to the present. And I got a lawyer, a young lawyer named Ryan Gauthier to help me with some of the legal stuff. So I understood a little bit about uh, antitrust law. And uh, yeah, we're very pleased with the way it went. And uh, we're going to look forward to your book. And once again, thank you for coming on. Uh, our guest today was sports broadcaster Mark Hebsher. His podcast is Hebsey on Sports. And as he said, his new book comes out in February. Thanks. Thank you, Bruce. Don't forget to subscribe to The Full Count and all our podcasts at iTunes and on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. You can also access my columns, my podcasts, and my poetry on the website. I'm now also appearing twice a week on Sirius XM Radio, Channel 167, Canada Talks. I'm on at noon Eastern Time, Mondays and Fridays. Till next time, this is Bruce Dobigan, and remember, the story isn't complete till it reaches the full count.